Okay, now it's a good morning. Buenos dias. Good morning, everybody. If you would begin to return to your seats. I almost had a, uh, a moment like Pink Panther. If y'all remember Pink Panther when he went in the sound booth and he said, is this booth soundproof? And it was soundproof from the outside, from the inside, but he went in and relieved himself. Yeah, I almost went to the restroom with the mic on. That would not have been good. So thank you, Frank, for, uh, yeah, getting me together here. But good morning. My wife is here, so I can start. <laughs> good morning. I'm Pastor Lance. I serve as one of the pastors here at Newbury Church. I'm waiting for her. I want her to be here. I want her to be here. I serve as one of the pastors here at Newbury Church. Yes, I'm Pastor Lance. Um, just telling you, Lance may not be helpful sometimes if you're visiting. But if you're visiting, we're glad to have you. Uh, we hope that uh, you feel welcomed and loved and that we can reflect a healthy New Testament church. Um, pastor, our dear brother, our dear brother and pastor, Pastor Michael Matala and his wife, Aliyah Matala, and his children, Emery and Thea and their dog, are all on sabbatical. <laughs> They're all on sabbatical, and so uh, we wanted to give them time to rest and recover and be rejuvenated for the Lord's call. We hope they're not only resting well, but that God is uh, bringing them great joy in this season for whatever he has for them in this season as it pertains to their sabbatical. So, myself, Pastor Jesse, and Pastor Mike, Mayobra, we're in the book of Colossians. Um, our glorious hope, our glorious hope. Pastor Jesse led us off last week in the book of Colossians, uh, two weeks ago, I'm sorry, uh, Colossians 1.1, teaching us on thanks for our glorious hope. Thanks for our glorious hope, 1-1 one, one, uh, through 14. Last week, Pastor Mike walked us through the high Christological hymn, meaning we put Jesus on full display in Colossians, our glorious hope, reminding us that Jesus is Lord over creation, the aim of creation, and the king of our hearts. That was a beautiful thing, brother. Thank you. Are we recording, Frank? Okay. I'm sorry. I, I had instructions. I had pastoral instructions to record on my uh, iPad, but I am pe petrified to try to stop doing what I'm doing to try to record on this iPad. So I'm glad we are <laughs> we are rolling. So uh, we're in the book of Colossians. Uh, my points will be on the screen to my left, your right. And if you would turn, stand and turn, if you will, if you can. And we're going to read Colossians chapter one, verses 24, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, which is not that far. But we're going to be in Colossians 1, verse 24, into chapter 2, to the fifth verse. And I'm going to be in the CSB, but you can read whatever translation you're most faithful to, and we'll take it. <clears throat> Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is, the church. I've become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us to this place today. We thank you that you have risen the sun today, that you are sovereign over this world, sovereign over creation, sovereign over our hearts, our brokenness, our depths, our fears, and your glory in us, Christ in us. And so, Father, as we look at your word in Colossians this morning, I pray that we would see it is your power that works wonderfully in us, and even as a means to looking more like Christ, we go to the Gentiles. We go to those around us. And even if it causes us to suffer, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Didn't want that screen to lock up on me mid-sermon. The title of my sermon this morning is Our Glorious Hope, The Riches of Christ Shared Through Suffering. The Riches of Christ Shared Through Suffering. The spread of Christianity can find its origin in the pages of the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We know that Jesus was talking about their immediate context, spreading out to the more um, uh, city, state, and global context, essentially. There is no debate that Jesus here is speaking about the spread of the gospel in the church um, in the region. Part of that spread of Christianity can find itself on the continent of Africa. And this is where um, it hits near and dear to me because I remember when I converted to Christianity, the narrative was, why are you following Christ? People were asking, why are you following Christ if, if, if Christ was just forced on your ancestors? And that's the only reason that you believe because you were brought over here on a boat and they made you believe. And so now you're a Christian. Ah, how wrong they are. How wrong they are are. Christianity found itself in North Africa just a few hundred years, if not sooner, after the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. There's been more than enough documentation that says that Africa was a place that Judeo-Christian thrived long before the transatlantic trade slave. In my recent preparation for a class that I taught at Beside You for Life, it's called Urban Apologetics. Um, I came across uh, a beautiful nugget, and I want to share it with you this morning. And her name is Saint Felicitas. Saint Felicitas. Felicitas of Carthage, which is North Africa, an African woman from the third century 
was martyred for her faith, was martyred for her faith in the third century in the, on the continent of Africa, even though she was pregnant at the time of her martyrdom. That's amazing, saints. Felicitas refused to obey the emperor at the time that was telling people to renounce their faith. She refused to obey the emperor and renounce her faith because her commitment was to Christ in the face of motherhood. And this spoke volumes to the persecuted church in Carthage. Felicitas gave birth to a baby girl just days before, yep, her execution. As she cried out in pain during childbirth, someone asked her, how are you ever going to endure suffering and martyrdom if you can't take the pain of childbirth? Felicitas replied, now it is I who suffer what I am suffering, that there be another in me who will suffer for me because I will be suffering for him. I'm going to say that again. She replied, now it is I who suffer what I am suffering. Then there be another in me who will suffer for me because I will be suffering for him. Church, I don't know about you, but after hearing Felicitas, I call her T.T. Felicitas, Hearing her story of faith and martyrdom, it inspires me. It inspires me. I don't know what suffering is going to look like before Jesus comes back in the United States. But I'm well aware of what it looks like for some of our brothers and sisters in Asia right now. It's one of the fastest growing Christian communities around the world. And I also know that in early Christianity, the Lord was adding to the believer's number daily, those that were being saved. Acts 142 reminds us of that. Spoiler alert, the gospel will spread. The gospel will spread. Christ's kingdom will come, and we as followers of Christ, whether it's by our North African, North African saintees who held it down in Carthage and emboldened others in their faith in Christ, my Asian brothers and sisters helping spread Christianity in unlikely places, we, too, must believe that the mystery of Christ will still be revealed. Felicitas of Carthage knew that her faith would cost her. She was compelled to take her faith all the way to the end, even if it was her end. Church, as we listen to the word this morning, something that I want you to take away is that our glorious hope compels us to share Christ even if it cost us. Our glorious hope compels us to share Christ, even if it cost us. As you have heard in two previous sermons, Paul is writing this letter to the faithful saints in Colossae. Colossians 1.1. From his jail cell, Paul tells the believers in Colossae that he rejoices in his sufferings. Sounds kind of weird. I don't want you coming away from this sermon thinking, so I need to smile during hard times and just put on a happy-go-lucky face? If you want, but that's not what I'm asking you to do. No, but I'm saying that if we experience the deep riches of salvation in Christ Jesus and the loving promise of his great covenant loyalty, when we walk through suffering in this world, we can still rejoice. I've walked through being left out of uh, a whole side of my family, been left out of my culture at times, missing out on a career that I wanted, I was bullied as a kid, mocked as an adult by family and friends. Some of you may feel like 
the same way. Like you were left out of your own culture. You were left out of your own family. You were left out of certain places that you thought you fit. Some of you may feel as if you were just left to rot in a season and nobody came to your rescue. I know your stories. And we can still rejoice in God's calling on our lives. As hard as this stuff is, walking out our faith in the midst of opposition, there is still hope. There is still hope in the gospel message. As gut-wrenching as this can be, there's hope in the gospel message. A glorious hope, and his name is Jesus. So while you were sitting there riding all by yourself, he picked you up while you were riding, breathed in you his breath, and said, you are alive now. Go and tell others with the breath that I just gave you. The mystery made known. Hope for the Gentiles. And so we might have to unpack a little bit what this Gentile context looks like. And so Gentiles were people who were not Jewish. They weren't in necessarily the, uh, seen as at the time, the covenant family of God, right? Uh, They were seen as, as less than, dirty, not worthy. They couldn't just roll up in church. They had to kind of sit on the outside. And so Paul is like, yo, take this ministry to them. My first point this morning is our glorious hope calls us to suffer. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. So the question begs to to be asked. Why does Paul express his state of rejoicing in his sufferings? Kind of crazy, right? To answer that question, we need to unpack the entire verse. Paul says he is suffering for you, that is, the faithful saints in Colossae. And by suffering, he is completing what is lacking in Christ. Now, what is Christ lacking? Is Paul in any way saying that the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ was incomplete? I don't think so. One commentator noted this is the most controversial verse in the entire book of Colossians, right? Like, I'm going to fill up what Christ is lacking. That don't sound like the first, you know... Uh, 31, 31 books of the Bible, Paul. I mean, how, how could Paul say something that hints at Christ lacking anything? And just so we won't get confused, we're going to talk about that. First of all, Paul says that he is suffering for his body, the church, as the latter part of verse 24 tells us. He's suffering for the church. Paul is referring to a physical suffering as he sits in jail. Although the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, Paul is in and out of jail, right? Because they keep throwing him in jail because he's proclaiming the gospel and he keeps going back to jail. But why is he completing what is lacking? Why is he completing what is lacking? Second of all, as I alluded to earlier, Jesus is not lacking anything. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. So we know that Jesus is eternal, Jesus is coexistent, and Jesus is with the Father. Jesus is God. Then what is Jesus lacking? Nothing. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, not a duplicate copy made at FedEx, Kinko's, or Walgreens, nope, or Office Max, but a complete representation of God himself. One commentator stated that we need not to look anywhere else but Christ in order to fully understand God. Tony Evans says, if you see Jesus, he explains God. He's not lacking anything. 
Colossians 2.9 tells us, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I repeat, Jesus is not lacking anything. Well, Jesus is God, we get it, but what about his ministry? So maybe he's not lacking anything in his character and his nature, but what about maybe he didn't do anything, uh, maybe he didn't finish the job? Mm, nope. Well, Romans 8, 3 and 4 tells us that Christ fulfilled the law. Romans three twenty five says that Christ satisfied the wrath of God against us for our sins. Jesus clearly did what he was supposed to do on earth in living completely obedient to God as God, satisfying the wrath of God and redeeming mankind back to himself. So Jesus is not lacking anything in his character, in his nature, or his work. He's not missing nothing. He's a hundred on Madden. Forget about it. So Jesus is not lacking anything, yet we still have to address Colossians 1.24, where Paul says about this lack. So there are several different viewpoints, and I've been emboldened by Pastor Michael in, in years past and weeks past to just tell you the different viewpoints and just to tell you where I land on these viewpoints. And they've been debated, and so you may come to me after the sermon and say, nah, bruh, I'm going with number two, but that's okay. So the first viewpoint is mystical union. I'll let you write that down. Is the mystical union view. This view held long ago by John Calvin. Some of us may know him. And Calvin says it like this. Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members. And in this way, there are filled up those sufferings which the Father has appointed for his body by his decree. An example that Calvin gives is Acts chapter 9, when Paul is on the way to Damascus, before he converted to Christ, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Calvin makes a reference. He says, look, you're not, per he says, why are you persecuting me? Like, like me, Jesus, right? So in plain English, Calvin thought through physical sufferings of the members of, of, of the church in present day uh, were physically felt by Christ at the same time. Like we suffer, so Christ feels that. That's the first viewpoint. The second viewpoint is messianic woes. Messianic woes. This interpretation, based on some alleged parallels in Jewish literature, claims that the church needs to fulfill a certain quota of sufferings or messianic woes, that's how it got its name, prior to the return of Jesus. And this definite amount of sufferings is being trimmed down by men like Paul, who worked hard and absorbed more than his fair share of these sufferings. We know that Paul suffered. The problem with this in the book of Colossians is that Paul doesn't give a definite amount of time or sufferings that needs to take place to fulfill his ministry. While he is completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction, he makes no mention of how much work is still left to be completed. So this next view is the view that I've accepted and I've kind of leaned on in this sense. And I'm going to just call this the modern view. When we look at the context, Paul goes on to say, I've become the church, servant, church's servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, Colossians 1.25. Here Paul uses the idea of fullness again. He fills up Christ's afflictions and makes the word of God fully known. So what's the connection? The connection is the mission. Paul is saying he is carrying out his God-given mission to the Gentiles, and in carrying out that mission, 
He is making the message of fully, he's making the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ fully known ge- geographically, taking it to the ends of his known world and establishing the gospel across the span of cities and countries. And so that's what we're supposed to do. Take the gospel wherever we go. If, we, if I move to, to my um, hometown of Chicago, I'm taking the gospel with me. If you move, if you leave, if you go somewhere, take the gospel with you. That's, just a little, that's free. So what does he mean when he talks about lack? The lack is the gap of sufferings between the present reach of the gospel and the sufferings necessary to establish a gospel presence among the Gentiles. So if we do our job, fulfill our call in Christ, as, as, as God has sent us, commissioned us to share the gospel, then we're going to take ales naturally. That's just how it's going to work, right? Like you can't just go tell people about um, the most controversial hard-hitting figure in human history, even, even in scholars' sense of like Jesus is either a liar or he's like a crazy man or like we really just got to believe him because the stuff that he claims is legit, right? And so naturally, if we're sharing the gospel, if we're spreading the gospel, there's going to be some pushback, right? And we, gotta get it, and we know it's going to get to the Gentiles and we know we're commissioned to share with people, so it's going to be some pushback. This parallels Jesus' own mission to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. Romans 15, 8. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. Jumping down to verse 15 in Romans 8. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on, the, on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So people who don't, who didn't look like Jesus culturally, people who didn't kick it with Jesus culturally, people who weren't supposed to be around Jesus as a rabbi and a man culturally were supposed to get this gospel, right? So how does Paul fill up that lack by carrying the gospel in his day all the way to the heart of the Roman Empire. As Pastor Mike reminded us last week, Christ is the preeminent one. He lacks nothing. Jesus has a once and for all sufficiency. So we suffer in ministry too. Because if Christ were still here in ministry, he too would be suffering. And how have those sufferings been for their sake? Answer, Paul's sufferings have benefited both the Gentiles broadly, and also the Colossian church. Paul can rejoice because he knows his sufferings are being used to spread the gospel. Who would have thunk it? A Pharisee who persecuted Christians is now rejoicing in his suffering as he sees Gentiles coming to saving faith. For those of us who consider ourselves to be Christian, we have some things to consider, don't we? Can we look at someone we consider an enemy or someone we consider an adversary, or a troll, former class bully, a family member that just wears you down at those family gatherings, right? Or a person we just can't stand to embrace. Can we then see our call, can we embrace our call to suffer, if that's necessary, to see that person adopted into the family of God, even if you don't want them in your family? Can we see them wanting to inherit the same riches that you have, even though they make more than you now? 
And after we have moved to see this person who really gets under our skin in a redeeming light, can we then not only suffer, see them in, in God's kingdom, but can we suffer well for them so that the gospel may be proclaimed? I guess I can appreciate the church's tax-exempt status. I'm, I don't get this, but um, personally, I don't receive this, I should say. Uh, pastors get a housing allowance. We're private citizens. We can pray aloud in public. That's all of us. We can come here and praise and worship. I really enjoy it, as you know. We all do. But what if it was snatched away in a moment's notice, right? Like, what if we just couldn't come here next week? What if we just couldn't gather and assemble? What if it was just stripped away? What if we couldn't sing, sing the glorious hymns of Christ? I'd be hurt, Crystal. What if we as a church had to pay taxes? What if we were censored? And all of that's happening now. Imagine all of that's happening. But now imagine that neighbor who's been like really passive on your gospel presentations is like, remember that Jesus you told me about? Man, I'm hurting these days. Can you tell me a little more about him? That mama you see in the grocery store on your trip to Aldi or Walmart is like, friend, my kids are driving me crazy and I feel hopeless. That coworker who walks away when you start sharing stays and says, man, I'm miserable. Does Jesus have an answer for my divorce? Your family members call and repent and apologize and ask for forgiveness for past hurts and put-downs and traumatic experience. Your children start listening to you. They speak kindly to you. Your spouse grows patient, rejects porn when you're gone, and sees you not as their adversary but the help meet or protector God intended. Like stuff starting to look more like Jesus in your life. This is what Paul envisions at the Colossian church in spite of suffering and persecution. The gospel will not only be shared, but seeped and steeped and reaped that believers will mature and experience Christ on a whole new level. Praise God for T.T. Felicitas. She said, miss me with denouncing my faith and her refusal to denounce her faith emboldened others in North Africa to keep their faith. As apologist Lisa Fields noted, so what if you, so what, <laughs> I got tongue-tied there. What if how you suffered job loss, family loss, income woes, relationship issues, hurt, marital strife, loneliness, mental health breakdowns, and plain old being hated caused others to ask, what hope do you have? The glorious hope of my life is the hope of the gospel, what you can tell them. And then you tell them, you and I both know that this world is jacked up, tore up from the floor up, and yeah, I'm smiling in my heart because Jesus is the bread that goes with my cheese. It may look like a day at the beach for me. Why? Because I bathe in the living water. And when I get out, don't call me Ashy, call me Asher, because I'm happy to know God and enjoy God forever and tell others about God. <laughs> Dark-skinned brothers got lotion needed, needs. But yes, we can be happy. Not a fake happiness, but we can still exude joy. So we can rejoice when our ministry calls us to suffer as we further the kingdom of God by walking and living in the will of God. So not only does our glorious hope cause us to suffer, my second point, our glorious hope calls us to actually share the gospel. Paul, verse 25 says, 
I've become its servant. Paul says, I've become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make, word, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that Paul speaks about is Christ. Verse 27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's our hope, the hope of glory. The people of God in the Old Testament were in relationship with God, primarily through the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's how they knew God. They had a relationship with God, but they didn't have the full view of God through the redemptive person and work of Jesus Christ. They didn't have that. They saw God, but they saw him through a dim and cracked mirror. They saw salvation. They just didn't know how they would get it, ultimately, once and for all. If salvation in the Old Testament was like deposits and living paycheck to paycheck, sacrifice to sacrifice, profit to profit, command to command, year to year, then the glorious mystery revealed was like hitting the Powerball. You just need to do that one time. Isaiah could prophesy, yes, he could, but he couldn't see it. Jeremiah wept, but he couldn't realize it. Moses, Joseph, David, and Noah looked like and were pictures of the man they would never meet. That's the mystery that our Jewish ancestors in the faith were waiting on. They were like, man, the Lord is telling us, but they couldn't see what we got, Jesus, in the full canon of Scripture. Paul is reminding the Colossian believers that he has committed his life to God first in serving the church. That is the people of God. And now Paul even tells us that his ministry and all the suffering that comes along with it is joyfully done to others. The Gentiles in this case can receive salvation. How do the Gentiles receive salvation? The mystery has to be revealed to them. How is the mystery revealed to them? By sharing the gospel. And here's what it looked like for Paul, right? So Paul would get to a new city. He would meet with the righteous folk. He would try to go to church with his people. And then in Acts 14, 19, it looks like this. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they won over the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. So um, in colloquial terms, they beat the brakes off Paul. His own people did. Um, and so that could happen. Not saying it will, but he, was he went to a new city, he was rejected by the, by the Jewish leadership, and then he would go to the Gentile community. What it looks like is this. Galatians was written to a community um, that wants Gentiles to convert to Judaism. Paul says, freedom is not in the law, that's dead. Freedom is in Christ, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and then don't be submitted to a yoke of slavery. So there's a running theme in Paul's ministry. It looks like spreading the gospel to whom we deem not church folk. A new law, right? Can we understand that there are ways to express the beauty and character and wisdom and knowledge and riches of God? I love what Dr. Eric Mason says. He says, you know, if we're going to reach a people 
that have been unreached, and in, in particular, he was talking about the urban context, then we need to look at changing our iconography. Now, we don't have stained glass windows. Well, we got this one. We got this, this glass window, but it's not stained. But he talked about, like, if you're from the urban context and you walk into a, a church and it's got stained glass windows with, with European Jesuses and people of Scripture, or you open up a children's book and you want to read your kids a, a Jesus storybook Bible and it don't look like them, then that could cause some serious problems. He, he calls for a rebranding of Christianity, not taking the core message of the truth and changing that, but change the vehicle in which we use it, right, in terms of our pictures and our media and our print, right? I remember watching, like, um, Charlton Heston as a kid and seeing some of these Easter stories and all these Christmas stories, like, where am I at? I guess I'm not, I guess Jesus ain't for me. But I know that's not true now with mature eyes, right? And a mature heart. Like, I know that's not the truth. But we need to figure out, like, man, if we're going to go to people who need the gospel that don't look like us, man, what are we taking with us on that pamphlet when we go? Jesus ran into some of this in his ministry, to say the least. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about throwing a banquet, right? So Jesus is like, hey, there was a guy who threw a banquet. And when he invited folk to the banquet, they start making excuses. Got to go take care of this field I just bought. Got to go tend to my yoke of oxen. Just got these two pit bulls. Got to go get a cage for them. I got booed up and I got married. One dude just got married. Then the master was like, well, if they ain't trying to come, Go to Dixie Highway and get some folk. Go, down, go downtown and get some folk. Go west of 9th Street and get some folk. Go get some dudes holding cardboard signs with better handwriting than you. Go to 7th Street and get the young ladies you might see. Go to those, as my sister Bianca Althoff says, go to those who look like they just tow up from the flow up. And have them come sit with me. If they want to eat, they can come eat. Because y'all ain't trying to eat. So who are our Gentiles? This is where we have to unpack a little more of the Colossian context. Well, I just told you who our Gentiles were, right? It's easy to see the Gentiles in that context as a, as a black and white. They're not Jewish people, so they're not worthy to go in the temple. Um, they're not Paul's heritage, so that's an easy delineation. But we don't have that delineation so much if we live in the West End or if we live in America all the time. Jews were considered unclean unworthy, and not part of God's kingdom. Now, we got people who we feel that way about. So who do we consider unclean, unworthy, not part of God's kingdom? These are the very people, my friends, Paul is saying the mystery has been revealed to. The Bible has great precedent for God's riches being bestowed on the most unlikely of characters. Moses was adopted. Jesus, Joseph was a slave. Ruth was a half-breed, Rahab was a harlot, David was a murderer, and Mary had a baby out of wedlock. Yep, that's where the word landed. New breed, we got to see, see folk <laughs> who look like a full 10 on a sketchy meter and say, that man or woman of God can be in the kingdom. God can get a hold of that man or woman's heart. That could be their story. We have to have a ministry where Riri's ratchetness can meet his righteousness and then boom, solely they owe Gloria. 
That's the ministry. That's the work. Send the people who weren't supposed to be at the table, pulling up a chair and eating a meal as the same of us, same as us. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And maybe you hear that right now and you're like, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. I get nervous. It's not my gift. And Pastor Mike is going to get us ready, get a team of people ready to train all of us who desire to be trained in sharing the gospel in the three circles method. I won't get into it now, but just access later. I've used it. I've went through it. I've been trained. I'm going to go back through it if he would allow me to get trained again. New Breed, we have an opportunity to minister hope to those who are afflicted and oppressed. We know our stories. We know that we're broken. We know broken people. We also know hope. We have a ministry of hope and we have a message of hope to be shared. The gospel. And I guess I've said the word gospel like 15 times up here. And maybe you're here today and you're like, Man, I don't really know what the gospel is. Well, gospel means good news, right? And it's the good news that, that Jesus came to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve. Now, I've got to take a step back and say this world was created by Jesus, as Pastor Mike reminded us last week in Colossians 1. So God created the world. It was perfect in every which way. Um, then there was sin that came into the world. Adam and Eve were disobedient. They decided to be God on their own terms. They said, you're, you made us. You're God. You told us that. You told us to listen, but we think, no, we're God. We choose better. And so they disobeyed God. They ate of the fruit. They were disobe- disobedient, and God had to punish them. He had to make death. Death came into the world. So instead of killing them by his love and kindness, he killed an animal and sent them out with animal skin, right? And so now, man is in this constant struggle of being reconciled to God, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, that all of creation longs to be reconciled to God. Romans 3, for all have fallen sin, fallen short in sin, right? Nobody can make God's perfect standard. We would all have done the same thing Adam and Eve did, choose our own way and rebel against God. But the good news is, the gospel, Jesus says, you know what? They can't do it on their own. Every time they try in the Old Testament, they're going to get it wrong. So I'm going to come live the perfect life they, they couldn't live, die the death they couldn't do, they, they, that they deserve, and ascend into heaven and make it all right. They just have to call on my name and believe in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead and they'll be saved. That's the gospel. And that's what we believe as Newbury Church. And so if you haven't made that profession of faith in your story, don't take the communion we take later. But take that story. Take the Bible story of the gospel. Take that. So my third point, our glorious hope calls us to be intentional. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We should use a biblical worldview not solely to fight other worldviews, but to fight sin in the believer's life. We proclaim Christ not as an alternative news station, but as a living and breathing hope with living and breathing people. 
The goal of myself and the other pastors is not to conform you to be Southern Baptist or Reformed or be CSB carriers or ESV carriers. No, but those who carry the message of hope so close to your heart that you look more and more like Jesus as time goes on. Paul has a purpose with the gospel, not just to convict and preach, but to sanctify and to mature. The word mature in this text is the same word Jesus uses on the cross with his last breath. It is finished. This completed or perfect work on the cross was a one and done in reconciliation, but meant to be taken forth in the lives of the believers to help others be reconciled to God for ages to come. The already and the not yet. The already is he, Christ, put in the work we couldn't do. And the not yet, verse 28, biblical transformation that looks like a maturing and integrity, character, and biblical discipleship until completion. But that won't happen until we see him. Until sin is an afterthought, and our thoughts are his thoughts. So the question is, are we striving to grow in maturity? Are we grabbing brothers and sisters up and saying, let us mature in this area? Even if it costs us. James 1, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. I've come to realize in this season of my life, if I'm sitting somewhere and the grief of my sin is so heavy and it just kicked me, like hard, like hard, I'm like, naturally I'm like, man, this hurts. But man, by the grace of God, I got to look up and say, all right, well, man, I must, how do I look more like Jesus in this grief right now? In this pain that maybe I've stepped in or that, that was just kind of thrown on me that I'm experiencing, like, then how can I look more like Jesus? Because A, I know that he, I know that he feels, I know that he knows what it's like to grieve. Even though he's sinless, I know he knows grief. And B, the Bible tells me that this is going to help me look more like him. Some of us got to go through something to look like something. Some of us got to eat it to taste the goodness of the Lord. Some of us have to experience bitter to rejoice in his better. This is not a catchphrase or a cliche. The purpose is to be presented as, as a glorious bride with the smell of a pleasing aroma, dressed in pure white linen, glowing with the goodness of the Lord. I love y'all, but we don't look like that right now. So if we walk down the aisle, we're broken, and he makes us beautiful. We walk down the aisle, and we reject his hand, and he gave you his body. You mocked him, and he wept over you. You trashed him, and he washed your feet. You cursed him, and he blessed you. James is a cross-reference to suffering to maturity, to completion, all the same things that Paul is talking about. We got to be okay with our maturity in Christ happening simultaneously with our suffering in Christ. We got to be able to see the hardship. Hardship can mean sanctification, can mean sanctification. Paul and James teach us to see the suffering, to see that suffering as a way we can mature in Christ or be perfected in Christ. My son, as you all know, Judah, he's back there, he's not here right now, had major cranial surgery. And when he was born, I think I just kind of uh, tried to pass off any 
thoughts of grief in my head or heart and thought, oh, he'll be okay. I'll get over it. No big deal. But the truth is, with my wife's loving kindness and accountability, I've had to learn how to grieve. I haven't always handled it well. It hasn't always showed up well. But man, if I don't have to go back to his namesake sometimes and, says, and say, this time I'll praise the Lord. I didn't know what his seizure, when his seizures would end. I sat for eight hours with my wife, not knowing how surgery went. Then we didn't even know where he was. Two hours later, we found out where he was. And his face was swollen shut, couldn't see. But he just kept reaching out. Didn't want to go to sleep, just kept reaching out. And so maybe there's something in Judah's story that I hope one day he will share with his friends and say, man, I was blind. But man, the Lord has helped me see his goodness. Now, Paul is also telling us in this verse that he's warning us. He wants us to warn others. So what is that warning against? Paul is addressing Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heretical worldview from the second century that said Jesus was a lesser deity and that some men could perfect themselves through knowledge. So if I just know enough about Judah's diagnosis, man, I'm going to get through this. I got it. Nope. No, not true. Or special knowledge. This was a threat to the Colossian church that said that hidden mysteries or secret rituals could rival knowledge of God through Christ. It can't. In other words, these are cats that were looking for everything hidden under a rock except the rock. You meet the guy or lady in your life that's like, well, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? You're a Christian. What? Like, they just try to find every little detail about Scripture that, seem, that seemingly goes against the truth of the gospel, but it doesn't. Furthermore, this secret, higher knowledge, was reserved for a select few. The secret knowledge of God. Paul pushes back on this false teaching by preaching that everyone with the knowledge of God has the riches of Christ. This was to encourage and exhort everyone to maturity in faith, not just a select few of the Colossian believers. I hope that we never get to a point where we feel like it's a handful of us who can carry around a thick Bible and tell people what to do. Man, that would not be okay. <laughs> Everybody in here who is a believer, if you ate or 88, should walk with the word. Should be able, we should be able to look at their life and they should be able to speak into our lives the word of God. I don't care how old you are. So how do we apply this? We can't look at the Gnostic people, at the Gnostic gospel, and think, Apologetics were needed then, but not now. Let's guard our doctrine with sound teaching from the Bible. As Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. By doing so, you'll save yourself and others. 1 Timothy 4.16. If you want your spouse to mature, look for the speck first and then remind them of the gospel that saved them. If you want your kids to grow in the gospel, love them like the father who loves unconditionally and tell them about the best father-son relationship in human history. If you want your family to look more like Jesus, then show them the will of the Father by doing and saying the will of the Father. I forgive you, cuz, cousin, auntie, mama, sister, brother, because Jesus forgave me. Do you want to know about him? So we got to be intentional. My fourth point, 
our glorious hope causes us, calls us, our glorious hope calls us to fight well. Verse 29. Our glorious hope calls us to fight well. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. If you don't know it by now, Paul took his ministry very seriously. Paul even said to reject him if he preached any other gospel, Galatians 1, 8 through 10. Paul said if the resurrection didn't occur, our faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Paul said a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul knows that He's commissioned for a special purpose as a person set apart by God, but he also walks humbly, but he walks intentionally. What am I getting at here? Is that if anyone has a reason to suggest that God is, that God, that it, if anyone has a reason to suggest that God's supernatural power works in us, it's Paul. You can't preach, so what? You're not a teacher. Big deal. That's you now. You can't preach. So what? You're not a teacher. Big deal. You don't like kids. You aren't a people person. On and on. You make up any excuse you want. That verse doesn't say God will take you at your finest hour. God will take, or he, it doesn't say God will take some of what you're good at and put it with his stuff. It doesn't say God will take the best three years of your life and your best years of potential. It is his power that works powerfully in me, Paul says. So bring the brokenness. Yeah, we'll take it. He'll take it. Think of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Martha and Mary were his people. Martha and Mary go to Jesus because they know his power, and they say, Lazarus is dead. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. This is John chapter 11. Jesus takes his sweet time getting over to the house. The repast has already happened. They put the chairs away, and the meal train is already in play. Lazarus is at the funeral home. Jesus gets there and says, yeah, I know I'm late, but this death, this is the type of death that doesn't lead to death. This death leads to eternal life. Then he goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead, come forth, right? Man, if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead with his word. We got to believe that the word of God can raise dead people in our community, in our families, in our, in our homes, in our context, at work. Like, we got to believe that. We just got to believe that and trust it, right? Like, sometimes I try to, if I'm honest, I try to package it in a cultural context and make it more appealing. But even I should know I don't even need to do that. Let me put it to you a different way. Ephesians 2 tells us, as for you, that's me and you in Christ, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which, you used to, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and of the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his, uncomparable, his incomparable, incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by your works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Ministry is a worthy work. Being a Christian is a worthy call. You may not have an official ministry title if you're here. You may not serve in a particular area. You may not work for the KBC or work at a bookstore or anything like that. But I say it to everyone who's a believer. Ministry is a worthy work. So not growing weary in how we serve in the kingdom is important. Knowing that while we work, it is God's power that works in us. It's for his glory, not yours. So if it's for his glory, he's not going to send you in your own terms and try to give him glory. He knows he's the only one who can fulfill everything. He knows that. We serve in Christ, not for Christ. It's not something he's doing in us, but something that's being done in him. Our glorious hope, as I move to my fifth point, our glorious hope calls us to suffer. It calls us to share the gospel. It calls us to be intentional with our lives. It calls us to fight well. And our glorious hope calls us to live with purpose. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this and no one will deceive you with arguments <clears throat> that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So Paul, once again, is writing this epistle from jail. He's sitting in jail, writing to people, encouraging them. They may be discouraged communally, spiritually. Paul says he's struggling for those he cannot see in, chapter two, in verse 2. He is fighting for them to look more like Christ. Time is irrelevant. Distance is irrelevant. Location is irrelevant to Paul in regards to seeing the importance of people pressing on to look more like Christ. In these verses, it would be easy for us to say, well, yeah, God has revealed himself <clears throat> to be a God of a covenant people, those who call on the name of Christ. But before we just dismiss that and say, well, everybody's going to look like Christ if they're in Christ, man, let's think about this. We must ask ourselves, how communal are we as a local church and as a global church? How bad do we want to see somebody else look more like Christ? Do we know when somebody else needs encouragement? Do we recognize sin patterns in another brother or sister's life? And when we do that, do we want to show them to the point of, do we want to show it to them to the point of biblical restoration, not just to show it to them? Do we share our spiritual fears with one another? Deception begins in the heart, New Breed, right? 
Deception begins in the heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it, the Bible says. Sometimes we psych ourselves out of a phone call or a face-to-face visit or confessing sin or even encouragement. I know I can. It looks like, ah, it's too late to call over there. I bet they sleep. It's too early. I bet they sleep. It's not a good time. My kids are needing me. I'm at work. I probably shouldn't do this at work. I'm driving home. Let me just, you know, I'll, I'll hit them up when I'm home. I'm doing yard work, getting a haircut. You, you fill in the gaps. The thing I want you to take away from this point is that our glorious hope calls us to fight for one another. No matter the time, distance, place, or season, your messy house meets my messy house, and we can both ask Jesus to clean it up together. That's called corporate prayer and prayer requests. Your busy schedule can meet my busy heart and race in mine. We both can say we need to spiritually rest in Christ. Paul says in verses 3 and 5, In him are the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Paul did not want the church in Colossus to be tricked, confused, but he wanted to be encouraged and rooted and grounded in their gospel. What would it look like if you told a brother or sister what God was capable of doing in their lives at work or at home or with their spouse or in the community? We can lock up and look up and say, he got us. We stand together if one brother or sister is being tempted by another gospel, it should be hard to see. It should be hard to see somebody leave New Breed or leave the fold of God or fellowship. Furthermore, we say, brother or sister, I don't know all that you're going through, but we have a glorious hope, a hope that is real, a hope that knows how to feel when we grieve the loss of something we love, a hope that knows how we feel when we are rejected. I hope that knows how to take a crooked and broken, how to take the crooked and broken places in your heart and make them a masterpiece. We have a hope that can take something that was once lost and find it. Once dirty and make it clean. Once seen as hopeless and fill it with abundant hope. In Christ, we have all the treasures, wisdom and knowledge that anyone could ever have. Don't leave, don't walk away, brother or sister, but draw to our glorious hope because we can rejoice in his suffering because he suffered once and for all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word and how. Your word gives us hope. A hope that's better than a payday, paycheck. A hope that's better than a career, a relationship. A hope that transcends time, Father. We have an eternal hope And his name is Jesus. And Father, may we be reminded of that glorious hope that we have. And may we be reminded of Paul's words in Colossians that it is his power, your power, that works powerfully, wonderfully in us. We don't have to exercise our way to the finish line, but we have to trust the Lord and allow his work to be done in our lives. And Father, even if that means suffering, Father, May we still be obedient to the call. May we still go share the gospel because it is our glorious hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.